let's jump into the book of James. And um, I could not be more happy that we chose this particular book for this season in our church. The more I've studied this book, the more I've thought, man, this is a great book for our season as a church because we're learning right now to live out a new mission and vision. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by helping people find wholehearted life in Jesus. You're gonna find out the book of James is chock full of wholehearted life. And today's text is no exception to that. James is an intense book. It's very practical. It'll challenge every one of us. You can't read the book of James and finish at the end and be like, nailed it. You know, there, it, I, I'm challenged personally by this book and this text today in particular, and I think you will be as well. Eric Hoffman did a great job last week. If you missed his message, I wanna encourage you to go back and listen to it. A, because it was a good message. B, because it's the overview of the book and it talks about where we're going in the next 16 weeks. So go back online, you can get that podcast, that whatever you'd like to. He used an illustration of a coin and, and we wanna make sure that everybody has a coin. So I think we have some available in the back. So if you did, were not here last week and you did not get a coin, raise your hand. We're using the honor system here because this is actually a worth a dollar. It's like literally worth a dollar. So raise your hand if you need a coin. We've got a couple folks that are gonna come. Keep your hands up until you get a coin. And while your hand is up waiting for a coin, let me tell you about this coin. So this is a dollar coin. It's got that gold color. It's got on the front the Statue of Liberty and it says, in God we trust. And this is a reminder of the faith part of the faith works equation. James talks a lot about faith and works and how they go together. So on the one side, you got faith. On the back side of this coin, it has some gears in the upper left-hand corner. And then it says American innovations. You know, it's commemorating all the innovations of America over time and the specific innovators, inventors. But isn't that interesting how well that corresponds to the idea of work? So you've got faith on this side, you got work on the other. They are never designed to be separated. They are two sides of the same thing. So James over and over again is gonna challenge us. He's gonna say, live out your faith. Put your faith to work. Have active faith. Faith without works is dead. It's like you can't have one side of a coin. A coin has two sides. That's part of the nature of it. And so this is an illustration we're gonna keep coming back to. So put it somewhere where you won't lose it. I've been keeping mine in my pocket and then I realized that's a bad idea because it's already gone through the wash once. You know, the good news is it still looks as, you know, it's even cleaner. Yeah, but uh, put it somewhere where you'll have it. Keep it on your, maybe your um, nightstand or your bathroom counter, somewhere where you'll, you'll see it, in your purse, wherever you want to put it. And we are going to come back to that as we go through this series. All right. Today, we're going to cover four verses. You've already heard them read. There's two parts. The first part, verse five, is straightforward, clear, wonderful, and reassuring. The second part, verses six to eight, is hard, difficult, and a bit confusing. We're going to find life in both this morning because this is the living word of God for us today. Amen. Yes. Yes. All right. Let's jump right in. And actually, I want to jump right in by starting back where Eric took us last week. I want to read through verses one to four because you're going to see that's like a, a springboard into verse five. And I want you to see this context. So James chapter one, verse one. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result 
so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the context of the book, as Eric reminded us last week, this is for followers of Jesus who are facing trials of various kinds. What kinds of trials? Various trials. Does that include finances? Yes. Does that include some persecution in their time and day? Yes. Did that include some doubting? Yes. Did that include some relational conflict? Yes. Problems with kids? Yes. All those struggles that you guys wrote and Eric wrote on the whiteboard as you called them out last week? Yes. Those are various Trials of various kinds. We can identify with this. We are followers of Jesus facing trials of various kinds. The end goal of the whole book of James is right here at the end of chapter four. So that, this is the reason he's writing this. And this is the reason that all God's at work in your life. Here's the reason God's at work in your life through all these things. So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect doesn't mean moral perfection, sinlessness. That's not what it's getting after, but it's talking about a wholeness. So complete, lacking in nothing, perfect. All those three things are saying the essentially thing. There's progress to be made and there's a place where God is bringing you to fullness. He's bringing you to wholeness. He's bringing you to completion. That's where James is gonna be taking us here. This is a book about maturity and growing that way. And he's saying, because trials and difficulties are gonna move you toward wholeness, toward maturity and completion, James says rejoice in that because wholeness is what you really want, whether you know it or not. We'll unpack that a little bit more. Now, from that last phrase, I want us to jump into verse five because it literally just says, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now look at verse five. But if any of you lacks, you see how those verses go together? But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. Wisdom is a major theme in James. I think Eric mentioned this last week. James is considered kind of the Proverbs of the New Testament, meaning it's got a lot of different topics and some short wisdom-oriented messages. James, his uh, understanding of wisdom was rooted in the Old Testament, in the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, et cetera, right there in that wisdom literature part. We have to understand what wisdom means in the biblical perspective, particularly the Old Testament wisdom literature, if we're gonna understand what James is talking about and really what this whole book is about, if it's the Proverbs of the New Testament. Most people, at least my experience is, when they think of wisdom, they'll either go one of two ways. One way they'll go is they'll think wisdom is a lot of book smarts, right? It's accumulation of knowledge. And they picture like some wise old owl, you know, that's like got the dictionary memorized, you know, and just has like a long beard or something. I don't, owl, owls don't have beards, but I, somehow those images go together in my mind. Um, Kimberly is in the room. I remember when, you know, she knows where I'm going with this. We used to go travel like to the deep south, like Savannah, Georgia and stuff like this. And they have this moss that's growing on the trees. Can you guys picture like this? What do they call that? Spanish moss. moss. And Kimberly would always say, that reminds me of wisdom. You know, it's just like like a beard growing on the tree. It's like wisdom. Okay, so that's that's one idea of wisdom. Now there's another idea of wisdom that, that also people think, and by the way, it's not totally off. But the other way is wisdom. No, no, no. It's not book smarts. It's not the accumulation of knowledge. It's street smarts. Wisdom is knowing what to do, when to do it, to get yourself out of a jam or, you know, how to win friends and influence people, being, being quick on your feet. You know, it's like practical knowledge, applied knowledge. Well, that's a little closer, 
but it's still not the fullness of the Old Testament conception of wisdom. Let me give you a definition. Wisdom, from a biblical perspective, and this is an interesting way to think about it, wisdom is the art of living life the way God intended. It's the art of living life the way God intended, which is always the best way of all because God's the one who designed life. So think about it this way. You have a creator. You have a designer. He created you to function a certain way. He designed you. Like he engineered you to design a certain way. He engineered the world around us to operate a certain way. And to the degree that you're able to live out your true purpose, you will find flourishing because things flourish when they're operating the way they were engineered and designed to operate. So learning how to live life the way God intended life to be lived is the path of wisdom. You want wisdom, not because you need to be smart or want to be smart. You want wisdom because you want life. And, and wisdom is the path of flourishing. It is the path of life. You see this all over the Psalms and Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? Because God's the source of life. Like he's the fountainhead of life. You go to God who gives life. God shows you where you're gonna find life. The paths to go down where life is at the end. True life. Not just pleasure, not just short term, you know, things that make you feel good or relieve the pain a little bit, but life that is true life. God will show you where that is found. That's what wisdom is. That's what wisdom is, and we need it, and we want it. So once you understand that wisdom's connected to life, then you're gonna ask for it more, right? You're gonna cry out for it. And so James says, if you lack it, which I think all of us should raise our hand and be like, yeah, I, I, I don't always know what to do. I don't always know where to go. Ask God. Who else would you ask if you're looking for life? Well, we actually go to a lot of other places for life other than God, don't we? You know, we go to substances, we go to addictions, we go to entertainment, we go to all these other things. What are we trying to do? We're trying to find life over here. We're trying to like squeeze blood out of a turnip. It's like, it's not there for us. Life's not over there. It's over here. So if you need wisdom, if you need to, if you need to go, where do I, how do I find life? What decision do I make in this context? How do I engage with my children? What do I do? If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And then why? Because God will always give it. And that's the remarkable thing of James 1.5. He's saying, God will give it every time you ask. You cannot exhaust his generosity. Amazing, amazing. Eugene Peterson, and he's the guy, you've probably heard his name before, some of you. you. You may have heard of the book, The Message, which is a paraphrase of the whole Bible. It's not a direct translation, it's a paraphrase. And sometimes we tend to knock paraphrases, and I wouldn't recommend it for like your deep studying of scripture, but Eugene Peterson was a great Hebrew and Greek scholar. I say was because he passed away uh, just very recently. He was a great Greek and Hebrew scholar. It, the paraphrase that he wrote is, is actually really helpful. And in this case, he kind of nails this idea of what we're actually asking for. L- listen to how he phrases this, James 1.5 in the message. If you don't know what you're doing, pray to the Father. He loves the help. You'll get his help and won't be condescended to when you ask for it. So ask boldly, believingly, without a second thought. If you don't know what you're doing, pray to the Father. 
pray to the Father. Now, there is a little nuance when you actually look at the Greek that I love and I want to draw out real briefly. Um, here's, here's how you could literally translate it. You know, in, in our text, it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. But another way you could go that might actually be clearer is if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask the giving God. Because the, 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 the word giving in the Greek probably modifies the person who's giving, the God who's giving. So the idea that James is saying is, ask the giving God, because he's a giving God. He's a generous God. He's full of life for you, and he wants to give. He's a giving God, not a taking God. Ask the giving God. N.T. Wright writes this, and I, I thought this was helpful for me anyway. I think you'll find it helpful. God gives generously and ungrudgingly to all people. How easy it is for us to imagine that God is stingy and mean. We project onto the maker of all things the fearful, petty, and even spiteful character we meet so often in real life. Sometimes even when we look in the mirror. Listen to this last sentence. It's so good. Learning who God really is and what he's truly like and reminding ourselves of it regularly is the key to it all. I believe that is true. Learning who God is, really is, and what he's truly like. Okay, so what's your perception of God? Is your perception of God, like my, I had a friend uh, in, in a place I lived uh, way back, he used to say, you know, when I think of God, I think of boss God. You know, and he didn't mean that like, like, that's boss, like, in the cool way. Like, he meant that, like, that's, that's the guy with the whip, you know, like, get to work, get to work. What's wrong with you? Show up on time. Get your work done. Be disciplined. You know, it's like, that's boss God for him. Is that your view of God? I mean, we could, I'm not going to take the time to unpack all the other views of God, but do you see God as a giving God? This is an interesting quote I found, John Blanchard. It's characteristic of the unbeliever to see God with a clenched fist, it's characteristic of the believer to see him with an open hand. I would say not all believers see him with an open hand, right? But that's what the scripture says. So Peterson's right. Learning who God really is and what he's really like and reminding ourselves of it regularly is the key to all. That's why we gather weekly to remind ourselves who God really is and what he's really like. James says, if you lack wisdom, I do. Let him ask of God and he will give generously and I, I would, the way I like the translation, rather than without reproach, you could translate it without finding fault. Without finding fault, he will give generously. So here's the big idea of part one, okay? That's James 1.5, we're, we're through the easy part, through the, this inviting part, it's an invitation. Here it is, if you need help living life, ask the giving God. Ask the one who designed you for life, Come to him, seek help from him, go to him regularly, frequently, constantly if needed. Cry out for wisdom in your trials. Cry out for wisdom in your temptations. Cry out for wisdom in your decisions, right? Why not? It's right here, open invitation. Cry out throughout your day, your week, your year. You cannot wear out his generosity. He's the giving God. He desires life for you. He'll show you where to find it. Now, you may not always like what he shows you. Do you see what I mean? It's like, well, okay, fine. If I really ask God for where life is and where, what decision is really gonna lead me to fullness of life and not just to numb the pain, then I might not like what he says. You're right. 
but do you believe that he has life for you? Or do you believe that this other stuff has life for you? That is the big idea of the next hard part of the text. Okay? So that's a preview. Now let me get into it. Look at verse 6. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay, here's the problem we have with this text. At first reading, at first glance, it sounds like all of us are going to be excluded from the wonderful offer that I just taught on. Because none of us has perfect faith. Like, who could say, I never doubt? Not this guy. You know, if you need a pastor that's going to say that, you won't find it here. We believe part of being courageously real is saying, you know what? The walk of faith is is not all pansies and roses and certainty. And it makes some of you nervous. Like, what do you mean it's not certainty? Well, we're going to talk about that here. But but here's what I want to say. The problem when we get to verse six is we're like, didn't God just say he gives without reproach? He gives without finding fault. And now he's saying, but if you have anything less than perfect faith, you won't give. You shouldn't even expect to receive anything. It sounds like what James is saying here. In fact, there's more to this text than meets the eye. It's it's not the kind of doubt that you think it is. It's it's related, but it's not exactly. And and I want to unpack that and get into it. Just really quick though, before I do, quick tangent, it's important and it's related. I want us to cultivate here at Fellowship space where people can be courageously real in wrestling with doubt and insecurity in their faith. I don't want this to be a doubt-free zone. Like you can't come in here and worship or you can't go in your small group and say anything if you're struggling with doubt. Because guys, that's just not real. Like, I don't know about you, and I know some of you, God's, God's given you a gift of faith that's unusual and remarkable. It's like, you, you just don't doubt. You just, you just don't. But for most people, and I hope that those of you that God's given you that kind of faith, I hope you can have empathy and love for those of us that that's just not the case. That's, I, here's my personal belief. I believe that most thinking, self-reflective people will from time to time have places of insecurity and doubt in their faith. And does it make them subpar Christians? All right? By the way, I think that's also true for atheists. I've never met an atheist that, man, under certain life conditions, he's not instinctively praying to God, even though he doesn't believe God is there. You see what I mean? Now, part of what it looks like and feels like to be a work in progress is your faith is not yet whole. Your faith is not yet complete. You've not yet arrived at James 1 verse 4. And so if your faith is a work in progress, there's space for that and room for that in the Bible. Let me give you an example. Mark chapter nine. This guy comes to Jesus. He's got a demon-possessed son. The the demon has thrown his son into a fire, has tried to kill him multiple times. Comes to Jesus. He's like, Jesus, I'm at my wit's end. I'm at the end. I don't know what to do. Like, he's at right at this place. Like, I don't know what to do. Eugene Peterson, like, ask God. He comes to God in the flesh and he says, if you can do anything, please do it. And Jesus has this brilliant response. He says, he says if? You know, he's calling out, like, where, where are you at? You know, do you have faith or not? 
Jesus goes on, if, you know, he says, all things are possible for him who believes. And then this man, you're expecting him to either say, I believe, like 100% certain all in, or you're expecting him to say, well, I don't believe. And then Jesus, you know, isn't going isn't to heal his son. Instead, this man gives this very honest, courageously real response. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. You know, I picture two tones of voice. Like, I believe. Help my unbelief. It's like, it's saying, I've got some faith. Like, I've got some faith, but it's not whole. It's not full yet. It's not complete yet. There's a part of me that I'm not so sure. Now, how do those two things go together? Well, I don't know, but I will tell you this. Jesus does not reprimand that man. Jesus kicks the demon out of his son. And later he's going to say, all takes his faith the size of a mustard seed. You don't have to have a full orbed, huge, massive uh, plantation worth of mustard seed trees. Just a little seed. Just a little seed. Now, back to our text. What is James talking about then? If he says, and it's clear, right? Ask in faith without any Doubting. Sounds like Jesus and James are contradicting themselves. Well, that can't be true. It's not true. James is using the word doubt a little bit differently than you and I do. To quote my personal favorite theologian, the, uh, the great Inigo Montoya, <laughs> you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And, and if you didn't get that, don't worry about it. We're going to keep going through. But the word doubt, let's dig into this word doubt, okay? We're going to the Greek again. You know, by the way, why do, why do we talk about Greek words here sometimes? Not just so we can be, oh yeah, my church talks about the Greek, you know? It's not about pride. But we have to be reminded, the original language this was written in, no translation's perfect. And so we miss nuances when we're reading in a translated language. And by the way, that's one of the blessings of having so many great English translations. And I encourage you to read multiple translations so you can kind of get different nuances of certain words. Well, this word doubt is like that, all right? So it's diakrino in Greek, diakrino. It means to differentiate, to divide, or separate, cut into parts, and you're thinking, how does that, why do they translate it doubt? I'll explain in a minute. Um, by the way, the same word is used in chapter two, verse four to describe divisions in the church, wrongful divisions in the church caused by you know, favoring wealthy people, creates diacrino, creates divisions in the church. So it's used as a verb, all right? And so it's to divide, but in this case, and this is where knowing a little grammar helps, you know, but I had to get a refresher and I'll give you a refresher on grammar here in a minute. It's written in the middle voice in our verse today. Now, if you don't remember the middle voice, and I had to look it up to you this week, the middle voice is when the, the subject of the verb performs you know, the action on himself. So the same person, let me get this right, the same person is both performs and receives the action of the verb. Let me give you an illustration. I, I've got this little thing on my hand here, right? Well, what happened to you? I've had that question already a few times today. And uh, by the way, it's really a funny story. It actually involves me doing a sermon illustration that went wrong. <laughs> or right, depending on the way you look at it, right? And I, I was joking earlier. I said, you know, like, athletes always have cool athlete stories and stuntmen have cool stuntmen stories and preachers. And like, I injured myself on a sermon illustration. Like, give me a break. But it was a good illustration. Thank you very much. Now, I injured myself. 
I performed the action of the verb. I received the action. I injured myself, middle verb, middle, middle voice, middle voice. So now you got diacrino. I divided myself, probably better translated, I'm divided in myself. I've got some things going on here that are conflicting. Now you start to see where, okay, I can see where they get doubt from that. It's like, I think this, I think another, okay? But it's more than just thinking, and it's not intellectual doubt that James is after here. And I, can't, I couldn't say it any more clear than Douglas Moo, who wrote a really good commentary on James. So let me read this to you and let this sink in, and then I'll illustrate it. The word suggests not so much intellectual doubt as a basic conflict in loyalties, it's a conflict in loyalties, not some occasional or even frequent intellectual doubt. So let me illustrate this. This is a true but embarrassing story. I bet most guys in the room can identify with this story. In high school, I had a crush on this girl, okay? Hadn't met Jody yet, so it wasn't Jody. And, uh, you know, we, she kind of liked me, but she also kind of liked this other guy. And it was like agony, you know, she like, she sort of strung us on, like not, not in a mean way, but like she just, she was conflicted. She couldn't make up her mind. It's like, she liked me, she liked this other guy, couldn't make up her mind. And meanwhile, I'm just dying inside, you know, because I really liked this girl. So what James is saying is, look, don't expect that, that you can go to God, you know, she could have gone to me, for example, at Christmas time when she's in this inner conflict and saying, hey, you know, what's my good Christmas gift going to be this year? I'm going to be like, what do you mean Christmas gift? You know, are you my girlfriend or are you his girlfriend? Like, pick. Take a side. Take a side. Conflict in loyalties. Eric mentioned last week that James quotes Jesus either directly or indirectly, or he refers to his direct teaching more than any other uh, New Testament writer. And that's true. Particularly the Sermon on the Mount. So listen to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. I should have quoted that to Emily in 11th grade. <laughs> no one can serve two masters, right? Now, James himself takes this same idea in James 4, verse 4, and this is really harsh words, but like the Spirit is, is uh, speaking through him. James 4, 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's this person that's diacrinoed inside. There's a conflict of loyalties. Are you a friend of God or a friend of the world? That's the question that James is asking. It's not intellectual doubt he's getting after here. There is a very minor character in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, only mentioned by name, that captures this very well. He is called Mr. Facing Both Ways. That's the idea of the way James is using diacrino. Now, to get an even better idea here and, and to sort of prove my point, you know, some of you are like, I don't know if that's what that means or not. It really does. Look at verse seven and eight. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Double-minded is a fascinating Greek word that's translated as double-minded. The, the Greek word itself literally means two souls. And as far as scholars can tell, James made this word up because they can't find it in any other Greek literature, like extra-biblical Greek, biblical Greek. It's nowhere else until James. 
and he's gonna use it twice in this book. Two souls, it describes someone who is divided at his most inner being or divided at her most inner being. We might say someone who has a divided heart. They're not finding wholehearted life in Jesus. They're divided. They don't, they don't believe God's the source of life. That maybe he could be, but actually I think life meant probably over here in my career or my pursuits or my, my relationship or my dreams. Where do you think you're gonna find life? Real life, whole, complete? Where's that gonna be found? What you believe about that is where your loyalty lies. Here's how Simon Kistemacher says it. Again, I'm quoting a lot of scholars because I want you to really understand this is a mind shift for most of us. What then is James saying? He's not referring to the person who wards off doubt that's most of us, but rather to the one who's double-minded and unstable. The double-minded man actually has two personalities or two souls, literally Greek, two souls. One says, this is so good, one says he'll try religion. If it doesn't do any harm, it might do some good. The other side of him says that he has no need for God because he wants to be independent and self-sufficient. Oh my goodness. Does that sound like anyone you know? Does that sound like Middle Tennessee in 2019? Oh, I'm a Christian. I go to this church. I'm there most Sundays. Oh, I believe in God. I'm American. You know, I'm from the South, whatever it is. Oh my goodness, does that sound maybe even, or would you dare to have the boldness to even say this in your mind this morning? Does that sound a little bit like the guy in the mirror? The woman in the mirror. This is where I want to apply James' difficult words for us, to us. Because on the one hand, you're like, well, I guess I'm off the hook with the doubting thing. I'm glad he wasn't talking about just some intellectual doubts because, you know, most of us struggle with that from time to time. But I want to say over here, no, he's talking about your loyalty. That's what he's really getting after. He's either saying you're committed to the idea that Jesus is the source of life or you're committed to the idea that something other than Jesus is the source of life. So you and I are reading this in a very different time and place than James. And interestingly, it's one that's dominated by half-hearted faith and name-only Christianity. Mr. and Mrs. facing both ways. Most people in our church, in our culture rather, maybe in our church, I hope not. Most people in our culture, many probably in our church, we go to church on Sundays, but honestly don't think that much about following Jesus Monday to Saturday. It's so easy for that to be us. It's so easy for that to be us. Now, James gives a vivid image here in verse six about the personal cost of that kind of divided loyalty. And I don't want you to miss it because it's gonna help you. And I want, I want to tell you this, guys. This isn't like a drive-by guilting. Okay, this is not like, if you're not super Christian, you're nothing, you know, and don't even bother to ask God for anything. That's not my heart, and that's not James' heart, okay? This is something much more life-giving for you than that. And so look what James says, okay? This isn't a powerful image that I think will stay with you about the individual who has two souls, the individual who has divided loyalty, Verse six, back half. For the one who doubts, remember he's talking about the divided diacrino, the divided person in his deep inner soul, 
is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Okay, a lot of us in this room feel like that. In other words, there's no anchor for your soul. And so when the storms of life come, which remember the context of this is trials of various kinds. When the storms of life come and you have no anchor for your soul, you're blown about, you're scattered off course. You might be dashed against the rocks. You might end up shipwrecked, you see. James is saying, and this is the life-giving part, you don't have to live that way. You don't have to live scattered about being tossed by the waves. You don't have to live that way. Faith in Jesus can and should be an anchor for your soul. And so throughout this whole book, he's calling us to drop the anchor of your faith. Put it to work. Drop the anchor into the deep waters of your trials. Drop the anchor in the idols of your life and the things that you're chasing that, that, that say they have life for you and they don't have life. Come back to this. Drop the anchor. Test it out, Eric talked about last week. See that it's true. Drop the anchor. Test your faith. Put it down. See that it's true. And here's what happens. When you drop the anchor, it's really interesting. It's not like the storm stops. You know, it's not like, oh, there's the magic formula to make my trials go away. Drop the anchor. No, no, no. The waves still are going. Sometimes the wind seems to pick up. And yet, and yet, think about the difference between the anchored ship and the adrift ship. For the anchored ship, when the wind eventually calms down, when the storm subsides, when the currents and the waves just go a little bit lower, and that day will come, men and women, even though it doesn't seem like it now, that day will come. Then the, the anchored soul will be right where you need to be. Right where you need to be. Listen once more to verses three or four. Don't put it on the screen. Let me just read this to you. Knowing that the testing of your faith Think about the winds and the waves. Produces endurance. And let endurance, anchored through the faith in Jesus Christ, let endurance have its perfect result. Stay under, stay anchored, you see, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, which is right where you want to be. But you got to have your ship anchored. So here's how I want to close the message is I want to give you a few minutes just to respond to what the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you in the last 30 minutes. And the band's going to come up here and they're going to pray, play some music underneath while, while you just pray. And, and I'm going to start the prayer and I'm going to guide you a bit before I pray. So here's what I'm going to invite you to pray about. There were two parts of our text this morning. Part one, ask God for wisdom. Part two, it's time to go all in and drop the anchor of your faith. And so for some, here's a chance for you. If you know, man, I, I've dropped that anchor. Like I'm, I'm in on Jesus and my faith's not perfect, but, but I know that he has life for me and I, I, I'm in on that, but I'm still struggling. Then this morning, these few minutes, gonna be an opportunity for you to literally live out James 1.5. If you lack wisdom in anything in your life at all, 
Let him ask of God. Like, how, how, when was the last time you prayed specifically for wisdom? Like, God, show me the path of life in my trial, in my struggle, in my decision. Which, which path has life for me? And which path would be one that I might choose of my own strength and it's gonna eventually result in death? Now, I want you to see how you this morning will be living out the two sides of the coin. The work is actually talking to God praying to him, asking to him. The faith is my soul is anchored to you. If you don't have life for me, I'm not gonna have life. Now, for others of you, this few minutes is an opportunity for you to drop the anchor of your faith, okay? You've had a divided heart. You know, you've got two souls going on. You're not really in on Jesus. You're not really out. You're here, but it doesn't really mean much to you if you're really honest and you're gonna talk and just be clear about that. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying to you through this text this morning, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the source of life for you. There's no other place to anchor your soul. No other place that you're gonna find life. And so this morning, you need to pray for faith to believe. You may not even have the faith to drop the anchor. Just say, God, give, give me the anchor. Give me the faith. You know, will, will, will you have enough faith just to pray that prayer? God, would you give me faith? Would you give me the faith? And your work is asking for it. And the faith is what God's going to give you. Some of you, you're like, well, I've, my anchor, I dropped my anchor 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. But if I'm honest, I think I must've pulled it up at some point in time. Not that you've lost your salvation because you can't. But these storms of life, you're just blown adrift because your soul's not anchored to much of anything anymore. Here's a chance for you to drop that anchor back in again this morning. I, I look at it this way. You've got your faith. You've got this anchor. You're just kind of holding up here in the ship. Saying, what do I do with this? Drop it in the water. Drop it in the depths. Test it out. Do that this morning. Pray that God would grant you the faith to do that work. Now let me pray for us and then I'll give you some space. Our Father, I pray for the men and women of Fellowship Bible Church because I care about them. I care about their trials. I care about their struggles. I care about their doubts. God, the heart that I have for them is a molecule compared to your great care and your great love. So I pray, Father, would you answer their prayers? For those that are asking you for wisdom in some area of your life, I believe in this room this morning, we will be embodying James 1, verse 5, and you will grant wisdom even in the moment. And if you don't do it in the moment, it's going to come later. I believe as sure as I'm standing, believe that I'm standing right here, I believe that you're going to answer that prayer. And my heart this morning is particularly for those who are either holding on to their anchor and they're not sure where their loyalty lies or those that have never had an anchor to drop, would you, by your spirit, grant the faith for us to be solidly all in on you, your son, the source of life. May we do that. And men and women, that'll just look like a little commitment that you'll pray to God right now. And I believe God will hear that and will respond to it. So wherever you are, I'm gonna invite you right now. Take a couple of minutes and pray.